Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. And this week, I'm with one of Britain's very best food writers, the author of First Bite and the Way We Eat, among others, B. Wilson. My youngest son, he was just up bright and early every morning and so I had to get up no matter how weary I felt or how much I'd been crying the night before and it was yet another thing that kind of saved me because I thought, okay, I don't know what to say to him but I can make him waffles. After years of writing about the psychology and history of food, this is Bee's very first cookbook. It's packed with recipes for an easier life in the kitchen as the subtitle suggests but the title, The Secret of Cooking... It's more about how food can heal, as she learned from her own experience after her husband left her after 23 years of marriage in the summer of 2020. The book is as much a metaphor for how to live an easier life. She might have called it how to be. But after her own complicated relationship with eating as a teenager after her own parents were divorced, I was surprised to hear that this is a book she's always wanted to write. I need to take you back to me as like a three-year-old or an eight-year-old where I was and that's and it's something I've written more about in my other book First Bite but just we all have a complicated relationship with food of one kind or another and in my teenage years I would so often kind of look back to just the glory of food when it was just like here is food it's delicious I love it I want to eat as much of it as possible <laughs> which was kind of how I was as a small child and I kind of think that's a great way to be and obviously even if you don't develop a slightly or more than slightly disordered relationship with food as a teenager, which I did, but so many people do at many different ages for many different reasons, food gets complicated when you're older. You've got all of this awareness of like the connection between food and health and fat grams and branding and all of these kind of noise around food and stories around food. And I do think there can be just something glorious about food when you're for me it was because I was so greedy and I just adored food and I adored being in the kitchen and I loved helping my mother to cook and just things like making cheese souffle together there's a cauliflower cheese souffle in my cookbook that's so much inspired by it was one of the first things I learned how to make and people think souffle is complicated but I've kind of always known it wasn't because my mum taught me you just separate the yolks and the whites and you make the bechamel and then you grate the cheese and you probably eat a handful of the cheese as you're going along if you're me you just stir it together fold it in the oven and it's magic because watching it rise and come out as this puffy thing so that's that was kind of that's the person inside me that needed to write this cookbook and that's so interesting that it took something really kind of life-changing, your divorce, to bring that inner child out. I mean, I read this as a very kind book. It's a, a, a blue book, but it's a kind book. Oh, thank um, you. And it, it's very much about cooking yourself back. You use the alchemy of cooking to change yourself, to, to magic up this other person, this new person. But actually what you're talking about is it's, it's your original person. It's the lovely little child who loved the, the food back in the kitchen. How, how delightful. Did you know that that was happening when you were writing it? No, it was a really strange thing because I'd actually begun the project. I mean, I'd been as I said, had the idea of a cookbook vaguely in the back of my head since childhood onwards. I'd very much put it on the back burner. As you say, I've written books, food books, but food books that very much weren't recipe books, books about food and psychology, books about food and history. Um, but then for about the, probably the past five or six years, the idea of the cookbook was getting louder in my head. Um, and I'd 
my last two or even three books, I'm now trying to remember, were with brilliant editor Louise Haynes, who's at publisher Fourth Estate. And I was aware that as well as doing the kind of nonfiction books I did, she was a brilliant cookbook editor. So I kind of had this idea, I'd love to do a cookbook and I'd love to do it with Louise, who also edits people like Nigel Slater. Um, and so th- I kind of put the ideas together. I'd got the proposal together. I thought this is all going so well before my husband left. So I kind of had this concept of cooking as something that can soothe you. The title came to me very early, which is really unusual for me. I'm usually terrible at titles. I usually have to go through 10 or 20 titles before I come to the one that fits. And this was exactly the opposite. I had the idea of a cookbook. I had the idea that I wanted it to be about how you combine cooking and life and you make cooking something easier and you have different forms of cooking for different occasions. And then I suddenly thought of the title, The Secret of Cooking. And it was partly that through my knowledge as a historian, I knew that before there were cookbooks, there were these things called books of secrets that were stuffed full of remedies, like cures for melancholy or potions against baldness, and that food recipes were seen as something analogous to that. And that really appealed to me. So I'd kind of embarked on the project. And then suddenly, completely out of the blue to me, although always with hindsight, you think, oh, maybe there were some more signs that I wasn't picking up on. The end of the first lockdown, 2020, my husband of 23 years just suddenly left. Um, And it was utterly heartbreaking. Um, And then a couple of months later, he dropped off a letter saying actually he'd fallen in love with someone else, which made sense of it more, but was even more heartbreaking. Um, And the project, it didn't, wasn't so much it changed, but it deepened because I suddenly thought, my first thoughts were, how am I going to do this? I've got this huge thing. And then it was, in a funny way, exactly what I needed because I was devastated and I felt as if I was winded. I felt so wobbly, but I had to get up. I had to, I had to get up and cook for my two, my two younger kids who were the ones who were still at home. But I also had to test a load of recipes. And as much as I would sometimes think, I'm not in a cheery enough mood to be doing this, it did change me, as you said. It kind of, it put me back together again. Just holding on to my mother's wooden spoon made me feel sort of grounded in some way that all of the other things I was trying at that time to make cheer myself up didn't have quite the same power. And and it's so interesting because you mentioned the title, The Secret of Cooking. You know, when I first started reading it and I read about you know, your heartache. And I totally understand, you know, that I've read so many books about people who, you know, slowly stir themselves back Mm. after terrible tragedies in their lives. You know, Olivia Potts was the very first um, guest on this show, actually, way back three years ago. And, you know, when her mother died, when she was 26, she turned to cooking to, to, to literally stir herself back and she talks a lot about the alchemy so I was I was looking for that through the ease of the recipes and you do make life a lot easier in this book but I saw the transformation that you go through and by the end I realized that the secret of cooking is that magic of Mm. cooking it's not about the easy recipes at all it's actually it's about the meditative qualities it's about the alchemy and you know your subtitle is you know, recipes for an easier life in the kitchen. Well, actually, it could just be recipes for an easier life. I mean, I think I think it sometimes is about the easier recipes. Like there are certain, set, well, we're going to get to some of the recipes in a moment, but yeah. there are certain recipes where I work really hard to think, 
what can you cook when you're just in that those many moments that all of us are at one time or another when you think I've got so many emails and I've got such a long work day or I've got to pick up the kids and there's no time for cooking but I want to eat something nice but I sort of want someone else to have made it so I do think there are moments where having a super super easy or streamlined recipe is the thing that will enable you to access the magic and the alchemy of the kitchen but I think you're right that just being there just I mean it's that Nike annoying brand line strap line just, just do, do it. it it is I mean you say you quote a lot of people I mean Bria Savarin I love this quote cooking is the last pleasure that remains when others have gone to console us for their loss I mean that says so much it's it? amazing uh, and the other one was the A.A. Gill quote four and twenty black thoughts baked in a pie <laughs> <laughs> you know it is about just doing it is about getting in the kitchen cooking something and that letting that transformation of the ingredients but also of yourself live the mood but you can only do that if you make life a lot easier for yourself you know if you if you are in a fog of despond if you are you know limited by your capacity to even breathe then it's very hard to take on a, a big recipe and that's I suppose what this book is all about it's, it's just get rid of all the rest of it and just focus mm. on feeding actually and making something beautiful yourself for yourself i mean just little things like you talk about garnishing the plate mm. just those little moments of beauty actually make an enormous difference don't they little moments of beauty make a difference but i also think sometimes it really is about i mean one of the chapters are called cut yourself some slack and i think sometimes you feel too exhausted even to chop vegetables. Well, I love chopping vegetables. It, I do think it's a slightly meditative thing. But sometimes I'm just like, no, I just have, I can't. And maybe you've got flu or maybe you've just have had a really bad day. And so I've got this recipe there called Mellow Soup for Frayed Nerves, where there, are, there is a time and a place for chopping vegetables into very neat, beautiful um, whether it's kind of mirepoix or julienne or whatever, all of those beautiful French cutting techniques. And there's a time and a place for taking giant chunks of vegetables, putting them in a pan, adding some water and olive oil and seasonings, simmering it away, and it turns into soup. And so I think it's, it, you kind of, it's, it's recognising your own mood and it's recognising sort of paying respect to yourself as the cook, I think is one of the themes I kept coming back to because I feel... One of the most important chapters for me, certainly as a separated person to write, was the cooking alone. Like I, The more I looked into the statistics on the number of households now where people are living and cooking and doing everything alone, and we're just not recognised in cookbooks that default phrase serves for. So sometimes it's, it's kind of thinking, OK, well, that kind of recipe in this particular book over here might work brilliantly if you're feeding a family of four every night, but you actually need to kind of find something more forgiving when you're cooking for one and something where you're grappling both with your mood and practical things that I don't want to waste food. Yeah. I mean, I think that I um, thank you for not using any words like food hacks or, uh, you know, and you do talk about the time poor narrative. And I want to talk to you a, a, a lot more about that in, in a minute. But actually, there are lots of real tips. Um, baked rice. I have never baked rice before. Um, on Saturday night, my daughter wanted me to, my daughter is 25, but it was raining and she wanted to go to two Halloween um, parties and she asked for a lift and I I was in the middle of cooking. I was cooking your sea bass with the spring oh, onions. fantastic. Um, Thank you. And the, the oat soda bread mm. and the baked rice. And somehow I knew that that was all going to be possible while I nipped out for, for 
30 minutes to take her to her parties. And when I came back, the baked rice was absolutely perfect. I mean, she's literally putting rice with water in a lidded pan in the oven. Yes. And it's obviously, yeah, it's good, isn't it? And it's obviously not original to me. Nothing is really original in the kitchen, but that's a really good example. I'm really happy you mentioned that one because it's kind of, obviously there's hundreds of ways to make rice. And when you've got the time for the kind of meditative thing, all of those Middle Eastern or Persian ways where you measure it exactly and you have it on the hob and you preferably rinse it or soak it for a long time and you get out the tea towel, that's great. But when you're just needing to nip out for half an hour, the oven way is good, isn't it? It's genius. Absolutely genius. The anxiety as well. You talk a lot about the anxiety of cooking and, you know, you allude to the anxiety of the dinner parties of your previous life. And I felt terrified for you and for my <laughs> old self when I used to get in a right old tears about cooking for other people. Mm. It's about feeding, isn't it? You finally realise it's not about uh, performance. Well, I think one of the things, many things alluding back to cooking alone one of the many things that's powerful about cooking alone is it teaches you the art of pleasing yourself and I sort of sometimes think you need to cook for other people as if you're cooking for yourself and to cook for yourself as if you're treating yourself as a guest and cooking for other people and if you can bring a bit of that spirit into each one it's better whereas yeah that I so often in the past when I was younger yeah, we'd have people around and you just think, oh my word, nothing I'm going to make is good enough. And I've got to make three desserts and I've got to add on another side dish. And I'm not saying I never get in that state now. And I also, like, my children are always telling my, I'm a hypocrite because I'm endlessly in this book telling people not to apologise for food. And then my 14-year-old son is like, mum, you've just said sorry for this dish, okay? <laughs> and it's partly, I sometimes try to say to him, I'm not always apologising. I'm sometimes as a food writer trying to analyse a way to make it better next time. But it's a fine line. But we know that. Mm. We read it in the book. You know, the vulnerability, your vulnerability, your fragility it's all there. And that's what makes it such a kind book. Well, thank I think. you. Um, and it feels very sort of metaphorical, obviously. You know, if you haven't got enough in the cupboard, it's enough. And mm. it's that we are enough. Mm. And we don't have to give ourselves such a hard time. I mean, I'm, I'm always banging on and exploring in, in this podcast and in, in all that I do, why we are so anxious in this food culture of ours this british food culture in particular and you've written loads about it you know why we get ourselves in such a tiz about the performance of food in your vast exploration not just in this book you know where are we with that what do you know now through this latest book that you haven't found before that's a really good question um i mean things i've thought about for years that there are places that have um Spain, Italy, that have such a strong sense still of, okay, this is the repertoire, because I have a section called rituals and repertoires in the book. But I think if you go to certain regions of Spain, for example, everyone will know what a tortilla is, and everyone will know pan con tomate, and everyone will know a sort of bunch of other dishes, and they will know what a good one should be like. And I think in Britain, okay, we've endlessly there are these discussions, aren't there, of what is the British national dish and is it roast dinners or is it chicken tikka masala? But we don't have that sort of shared common grounding to fall back on and that can make you feel quite rudderless and unmoored when it comes to food. So one of the things I suggest in that section, and it's kind of advice to myself as much as to anyone else, is if you can just build up your own repertoire of things that, okay, these are my 
absolute fail-safe dishes. This is, uh, the book ends with a recipe called Tasha's Never Failed Chocolate Cake, which is the chocolate cake that my daughter Tash has made over the years. And we've tweaked it and it's gluten-free. So we serve it to gluten-free friends. Um, the recipes in the repertoires and rituals chapter were linked to friends or people who'd been really important to me. So there's one called Anthea's Apricot Sponge, which is named after the kindest person I ever knew, who was a friend of my granny's called Anthea. And she always would make us Victoria sponge cake with apricot jam instead of strawberry when we came round. And there's something that's Gonzalo's Chicken Milanese, which is named after my brother-in-law, who's from Argentina. And he would rather it wasn't chicken, but veal or beef, but veal um, it's quite hard to get hold of but yeah make it with whatever you like but it's utterly delicious kind of breaded escalot which is what his mother taught him to make and then there's a recipe which is one of the four we were going to talk about which is called ratatouille for richard which i find really hard to talk about without crying which was named for a friend who died of a stroke quite suddenly um during the pandemic age 54 just one of those deaths where you think no no he shouldn't it shouldn't have happened anyway I was obviously thinking about him a great deal and had these happy memories of he and his wife and me and my ex-husband and all our kids would have these holidays together when the kids were much younger. And just the look on his face of utter joy when his wife Claire, who's French, put ratatouille on the table. And the recipe I've developed there is actually completely different from what she would make. She made classic French ratatouille where you you chop everything and you add it to the pan in stages, loads of olive oil, and she'd make a great vat of it. And we'd be living off that ratatouille for days of the holiday. It was a brilliant thing to make. And she would always call it ratatatouille. For some reason, she added that extra <laughs> syllable, which I kind of love. But my one is, it's a hybrid. It's, it's based on multiple people in my life because my youngest son, when he was younger, just adored the Pixar film Ratatouille. And as you know, if you've seen that film, the ratatouille in that film, it isn't really ratatouille. It's actually a French dish called a tion because it's all layered around. But he wanted it to look like that. So I looked at a few recipes of how you could do that and adapted it. And it's actually much, much easier, bizarrely, than classic ratatouille, but it looks really impressive. So, so that's a very rambling answer to have we lost our way in the kitchen. But what I mean is, when you can assign meaning, like that dish now has multiple meanings to me. I like making it partly because it's just a really impressive, easy vegan thing that you can either serve on the side of a roast chicken or just as a kind of centerpiece with a few other vegetarian dishes to please vegetarians. But it has meaning, it has memories, and therefore I want to cook it. Yeah. And that is your first food moment. And what you were talking about, um, the rudderless feeling that so many people in, in British food culture have around food. That is it, isn't it? And, it, you know, something like grief will pull stuff out of the bag very often, doesn't it? You'll find your rudder because you need to, especially if you've got children. You have to find some way of grounding yourself. And actually, cooking is a really good way of doing that because you just have to do that every day. You have to feed them and you slowly build your strength up metaphorically and physically until you have your feet back on the ground. And I think that what you're talking about with that ratatouille recipe is substituting one idea for another, but having enough of a rudder, having enough grounding feet mm. on the ground to be able to have the confidence to make 
those decisions about substituting. And I think that's Hmm. what the Italians, the French, the Spanish have, that we're learning and we are learning and we're learning very quickly. The other thing, as you say, is food memories and it's the associations with food and they're terribly important. And, you know, I have that lovely little image of three-year-old me (laughs) sitting in in her mother's kitchen, sort of absorbing all these food memories. Your second food moment is Anne's hazelnut waffles, which you loved to be able to pull out the bag um, and and make for your children when your husband left. This is a really important food memory for you and presumably for them. Tell us about this recipe and how important it was to make new food memories for your children who were also going through this grief. Yeah, I think it's this was a really important one. I mean, I feel like we've always, as a family over the years, eaten quite a lot of pancakes and waffles. And then after he left, it was it was often just so hard to talk to them about what had happened. And to I was constantly second guessing myself. Am I saying too much? Am I saying too little? Um, and then my youngest son, he's just like clockwork. He would didn't matter, you know, it was the pandemic, lots of people were having a lie-in every day at that point, but he was just up bright and early at seven or 10 to seven every morning. And so I had to get up no matter how weary I felt or how much I'd been crying the night before. And it was yet another thing that kind of saved me because I thought, okay, I don't know what to say to him, but I can make him waffles. And that's it's never failed to put him in a better mood. Plus what you were saying about how it, it puts you together kind of metaphorically or mentally but it's also physical like I really like this recipe I had a different version of it it really should be called Anne's almond waffles because my friend Anne who first made a version of this for me she always uses ground almonds but I love the flavor of roasted hazelnuts and that, that adds a kind of extra warmth it makes the kitchen smell very good which is one of my criteria for kind of healing or really comforting food and it just there was something about seeing him smile that made me feel better. And then there were waffles on the table. So even though my appetite had sometimes completely gone, I wasn't going to not eat some waffles. And because they're very high in nuts and they've got eggs in there and some butter, which I view as a nourishing food, or I know some people debate butter, still the health healthiness or otherwise of it, but I consider it to be a very good thing in moderation. It's It was actually nourishing. So I was, it's a kind of, many things going on at once but just waffles for me are kind of a happy food yeah and you've got a waffle maker that you talk a lot about utensils and most of it is about getting rid of stuff actually it's about not having stuff and making life really super easy in the kitchen but you do have a waffle maker and you do have a box grater the box grater is the thing it's the thing that nigella picked out as well isn't it you know tell us about your third food moment and why your box grater is so important to you so I have a box grater, but yeah, not everyone has a waffle maker, but pretty much everyone. I think if you went into kitchens, the length and breadth of Britain or indeed the world, you would find that most people have a box grater. But often it's quite a neglected utensil. And one of my happiest things so far about the book coming out has been a number of people, including even food writers saying, oh, I was actually thinking of getting rid of my box grater. And now your book has persuaded me otherwise, which couldn't wish for a better result. Really what I'm trying to say with the box grater is so often we think that the secret of better cooking is going to be an expensive gadget. You know, in January, there's always these big adverts for like buy this expensive mixer or buy this um, special juicer. I actually do have, after my mum died, I bought a very cheap juicer and I now quite like my juicer. But anyway, there are those gadgets that are selling you a different life. 
in a way. You know, people spend untold amounts on coffee machines. And if that makes you happy, you why not? But what I'm saying is you might actually have something already sitting in your kitchen drawer that is fabulous, that requires no electricity and can help you make a range of great dishes. And the box grater to me is like a miracle machine because it does the work of a hundred small knives all at once. And it's got this kind of homely, lovable quality to it. So long as you don't hurt your fingers, like I obviously don't love my box grater when it attacks me. (laughs) (laughs) And the courgette and herb fritters that you you choose for your third food moment is a perfect example of how to use your box grater. Yeah. So I make this recipe in so many variants so often. It's just one of those things that's great for kind of a midweek family dinner in its entirety with not much more than a salad or maybe some bread on the side. Um, yeah, and it's just the fact that you you grate the courgettes and the potatoes and the onion all on the coarse side, you grate the garlic on the fine side, leave them with a bit of salt, wring them out to get rid of the moisture. And then the second streamlining thing that I was really happy about in this recipe was I love all of those vegetable fritters. And you don't have to use courgettes, you could use butternut squash, you could pretty much use any gratable vegetable but there's that moment where you've got the mixture and you've got to fry it and it's so hard I find with anything shallow fried for it not to just soak up enormous amounts of oil and it goes too hot and then they burn and then it goes too cold and they're raw inside and then I found I could just adapt the technique of roast potatoes where you just put a tray with some oil in the oven let it get hot and then put the mixture in just let it cook itself like with the oven baked rice you were alluding to and it just makes it so much easier to make a huge batch of them obviously if you're just making a couple of fritters just for yourself sure do it in a frying pan on the hob it's a waste to switch the oven on but yeah so it makes me happy and it's all just from the humble box grater absolutely great tip great tip the your final food moment is I mean, in a sense, it's just a great tip. It's the loveliest red curry sauce. And we'll go into into that in a second. But what I really loved about it was it is absolutely addresses the time poor narrative. Um, We are sold this idea and you talk about this too. I'm always banging on about it in this podcast. But, you know, we are sold a story that we haven't got enough time and it's just not true. Um, However, what you do with this loveliest red curry sauce is you tell us how to make a basic recipe that we can use in many, many, many different ways. That's different, isn't it? And it's a different again to batch cooking. Yes. It's a it's an intention to make life easier. Can you just sort of unpack that a little bit for us? So I think you're absolutely right that I'm so rushed, I'm so busy narrative. It can feel very true, but it's also worth mentioning it's a narrative that really helps Um, the ultra processed food industry and it doesn't necessarily help us constantly to be told you don't have time to cook because something like an omelette can be incredibly quick and delicious and I have a couple of omelette recipes in the book which I really love one with mustard one with lemon Um, but you're right batch cooking for lots of people can be the solution like I really admire people who just sit on a Sunday night and make all of their food for the week but it's never quite been me because I there's something about it that Sometimes I'll do it and I think it's, you know, cook once, eat twice is a great way to live. You know, just always to cook a little bit too much and then you've got tomorrow's meals sorted out. Great. But sometimes if you cook too much in the batch, you just feel a little bit bored by day three or a little bit like, oh, really, have I got to eat this? And there's something about then freezing the batch cooked food where sometimes it doesn't seem quite as appealing as you're pulling it out of the freezer. So I'm not saying I never do it, but this is my 
way round, which is I have these things called universal sources. And there's four of them in the book. There's a green curry, which is based on a mira soda, green coriander chutney, except I used cashew nuts instead and changed the quantities around. There's a lemon yellow laxa. There's one that's got the flavours of a French fish soup, which I really love, but I'll usually make it with vegetables or um, something like butter beans and chickpeas instead. And then there's the one that I call the loveliest red curry sauce. Um, and actually making the sauce isn't particularly quick. I advise actually making your own curry powder, partly because the way that makes your kitchen smell is just heavenly. And if you don't feel better after that, then I don't know, maybe you don't like the smell of spice, but I love it. Um, but by the time you've made it, it doesn't take a huge amount of time. You've got this the makings of many, many different meals, but you don't have that sense of being boxed in. So you, what I do is I make a huge batch of it. I store it, some of it in the fridge for the next couple of days and then some in the freezer. And you can just get home tired, thinking I've got no time to cook and just pull it out. And then whatever else you happen to have in the fridge that day, you know, if you happen to have some chicken, you can make a delicious chicken curry. But maybe you've just got some tired old vegetables in the salad drawer, which is so often what my fridge looks like. And yet you can still, because of the sauce is so perfectly seasoned and lovely and it's got lemongrass and it's got coriander and it's got cardamom, it's going to make anything taste good. And those tired old vegetables are transformed into a lovely nourishing meal. Yeah, it's genius. Absolute genius. Just to finish, let's kind of go back to the beginning. So we've got little Bee in her in her kitchen and we sort of touched on the, the teenage Bee and her difficult relationship with food. Because your parents were getting divorced, you've now got divorced yourself. Um, is there a kind of a healing by completing that circle, going back and, and deliberately healing yourself and finding the secret of cooking and an easier life, both in and outside the kitchen. Is there a way of healing that teenage bee as well by by making it so much about food? That's a really good question. I think something that definitely happened, which I write about a bit in the book, was when I'd been with my hus- ex-husband such a long time that so many of my memories were bound up with him, including food memories. You know, I had all these rituals of things we made, I would make for him. And something I could do instantly through food and also through music but not in many other ways was access the person I was before I'd met him so one of the recipes in the book is um called something like chicken stew for tired people that's based on the kind of cooking my mum did during my yeah greedy little bee years where she just adored parsley and she everything she made kind of tasted of parsley and garlic and white wine and that stew it's not something exactly that she made but it's designed to remind me of the things that she cooked so I do think there was a certain amount of time travel through food and then also the beauty is that it's not just time travel backwards it's forwards as well because I could share it with new people so one of the recipes we were going to mention but then I we haven't didn't quite get to it was this one called burnt finger lentils which is it's adapted from this wonderful book called Syria Recipes from Home by Itab Azam and Dina Musawi. And the recipe just leapt out from the page to me because it's lentils, it's very delicious lentils. They've got lots of pomegranate molasses in and so they've got a lovely sour sweetness and and it's got lots of fresh green coriander on top and lots of fried onions. So it's going to taste good anyway. But then it has these tiny croutons. And actually, what I now usually would do to save time is just take some flatbreads, brush them with olive oil, 
bake them in the oven and cut them up. But in the book, they depict a woman using her own wedding ring to cut out the croutons. And I was just like, oh, I have to do that because my wedding ring had been really upsetting me. I mean, that's too strong a word maybe, but it was, I didn't know what to do with it after he left. I took it off my finger. I put it in a bowl in my bedroom and it would kind of give me the shivers when I walked past it. And given the number of times I was walking around my bedroom each day, that wasn't great, but I didn't quite want to give it away or throw it away. And I suddenly realised I could repurpose it as a crouton cutter. And that was a really great kind of funny moment as well. There was something a bit hilarious about taking my own wedding ring and cutting out pastry. But by the time I'd done that for the first time, it genuinely shifted something because I looked at it and I thought, oh, this isn't anymore a little piece of jewellery belonging to a sad, rejected person. It's a very tiny pastry cutter. Um, and so now I have that wedding ring and I actually just keep it on a dresser near the kitchen and doesn't make me feel horrible anymore. Thanks for listening. Do rate and review the podcast if you like it over on Apple Podcasts and then head to my Substack to see what B has cooked up for us on Extra Bites.